Hello and welcome to At Home With, a podcast from the residential business at Knight Frank. At Home With offers a glimpse inside the lives of some of the world's foremost property experts and their clients. And every week you'll be hearing conversations with interesting people from across the world about how they made it to where they are today, how they found their dream homes and how we can help you find yours. I'm your host, journalist and social media executive at Knight Frank, Rebecca Hills. Today in the final episode of season two, I'm joined by Jason Mansfield, an associate in our international residential department. Jason and I had an amazing conversation about how the global financial crisis altered the entire trajectory of his career, why he's so passionate about getting involved in his local community to enact positive change and what the big differences are between the property industries in New York and London. Jason began his career as a personal banker before moving into the world of property in 2005 to become an operations manager at Douglas Elliman in New York. In the US, Jason was responsible for two large offices in Manhattan that totaled 126 agents and staff. After 10 years at Douglas Elliman, Jason moved to Knight Frank in 2015 to become a sales manager for the US and Canada and has since been promoted to associate partner level. With such a wealth of experience, it's clear that Jason is a true expert in his field and I can't wait to chat to him today. Jason, it's a pleasure to welcome you onto the podcast. Hi Becky, thank you very much for for having me. How are you today? How are you faring with the UK in lockdown again? Well, it's um, lockdown 2.0 and, and, and been, been faring okay. I mean, I think the first, the first lockdown was a bit more difficult to, to, to manage insofar as just getting used to being at home five days a week and, and not having as much interaction with people as, as we used to have. Um, that was, that was kind of a difficult process for me, but it just kind of, feels like Groundhog Day, right? We're back again and I'm, I'm used to it. So it's not, um, not, as, not as challenging. It wasn't as challenging for me this time. Mm, yeah, it's, it's bizarre, but it doesn't feel unmanageable, I suppose. That's, that's how I'm seeing it this time. And how is it, obviously, you're working with the US and Canada. How has it been working across different markets at a time when international travel and everything is so limited? Well, it's been it's been certainly been more difficult. You know, Knight Frank, we have a lot of interaction with our cousins over at Douglas Elliman, and uh, and and it's been it's been difficult. It's just meant making sure to to spend time on the phone with with agents at DE and and you know actually uh, spending time uh, on video calls where we can actually see see each other, whether that's with Douglas Elliman with with clients. You know, it, we're just trying to make do as best we can. This year is much more of an impact on um, on how we conduct business than than I think we would have anticipated going into it. Yeah, definitely. I can imagine it's it's the one part of the property industry that's been particularly particularly difficult this year. And obviously, everything that's going on with the U.S. in terms of their election and things being changing all the time. How have the the markets been adapting and faring with everything that's been going on? Been, it's been it's been a mixed bag. Some markets are doing incredibly well, and and some markets are are a bit quieter. I mean, you know, the it's not not won't be a surprise to to hear that many of the big cities experienced something similar to what we experienced in London, where you know if you had a second house or had access to a second house, many of the people in big cities would leave the big city and go to the house out in the countryside, whether that's in the Hamptons or whether that's in you know Cape Cod or 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 Aspen or, you know, any of the second home, Florida second home markets. So the the bigger cities were quieter, but we're certainly seeing those come back to life now. Uh, and, and the benefit has been that some of the other markets that had been a bit quieter, um, you know, in, in, in years past, you know, they've, they've just, they've just sprung to life. And so, you know, houses, I was, was speaking regularly with agents where houses that were sitting on the market for, 
you know, three, four or five years at a time haven't sold, they were going into bidding wars. And so, you know, some of the, some of the, the secondary commuter areas, secondary home markets, um, fared exceptionally well and are continuing to, to do exceptionally well even, even now. Mm, that's so interesting. And we'll definitely go on to talk about the markets later on in our conversation when we delve into the, the property industry in a bit more depth. But to begin our conversation, I'd like to take things all the way back to the start and to the beginning of your career and find out why it was in particular that you decided to pursue a career in property. Obviously, as I mentioned in your introduction, you started off in personal banking. So what was it that inspired that move? When I was in high school, I uh, had a had a just a uh, you know typical summer job, and I'd saved up some money from that, and I was investing it in in the stock market, and with some some guidance from my my uncle, who was also involved in in trading trading things uh, on the stock market, and I'd made a bit of money, and I thought, right, finance banking is for me. This is where I want to go. So I started a, a uh, an undergrad degree in finance, which was the worst decision I could possibly have made. I'm not cut out to be in any thing to do with with banking or finance. But during my undergrad degree, I had I had um, taken a job with with a mid-sized bank in Nashville. Uh, where I was going to university, and that was kind of ticking along fine. It was, you know, I was just making do, and finally said, you know, I'm I'm drawing a line under this. This isn't finance isn't for me. I'm moving to New York, so I uh, uprooted, moved to New York uh, in 2003, and uh, started working for Citibank at the UN. And I really enjoyed that job insofar as I was interacting with some very interesting people. Uh, being based at the UN, and and I had a sort of set of permanent missions to the UN whose accounts I was was overseeing, and and really enjoyed that aspect of it. But still, banking finance wasn't wasn't doing it for me. And I was at a cocktail party one night, and a friend of mine told me I was kind of saying, you know, um, not this isn't this isn't really where I see my life kind of going. I'm not really happy here, you know. And he said, well, why don't you come? Come work for Douglas Elliman. You know, he said it's relatively easy. The, the grass is green. Come over here. So he set up a, a meeting for me to to meet with uh, Gary Kanata, who uh, managed the Greenwich Village office for Douglas Elliman. And, and Gary's Gary was a, um, a legendary figure in, in Greenwich Village. And I met with Gary, and he said, "Well, fine, um, sure, you can you know get your real estate license. Come come over here and." Try your hand at at real estate, and this is back in the day when Becky, I could have gotten your cat a mortgage. I mean, it was pre-financial crisis. It was easy, easy money. Uh, you know, you just had to make sure your phone was charged up. It was it was actually it worked out really well, and I did you know I did okay. I wasn't setting any records, but I enjoyed it, and it certainly was something that I could see a career path for me going forward. And so I kept at it, uh, was selling selling real estate uh, and ma- mainly was working in Chelsea and Greenwich Village. And then the global financial crisis hit. That was a difficult time because I, uh, as you probably spotted, I didn't grow up in, in New York and I didn't have a, a, you know, hadn't been in the business that long and I didn't have a massive you know, army of clients to to draw from, and um, and so I was having a really really difficult time once the financial crisis hit. And you mentioned there that 
things were going really well and that you were enjoying kind of your property career until the global financial crisis happened. What impact did that, I mean, hugely monumental moment in, in not just kind of your personal history, but the world's history, what impact did that have on you and where did you find yourself in the aftermath of that crisis? Well, that was a difficult part because, you know, I didn't grow up in New York and I didn't, I hadn't been in the business for a very long time and I didn't have a, a you know, an, a, a huge army of clients that I could, I could draw from in a time when, you know, the, the New York market was really struggling. So I went and had a conversation with Gary and said, you know, I'm having a really tough time. I was having a tough time making ends meet. And around that time is when he was in discussions with a lady called Deborah Camaros, who had her own company. So Deborah Camaros had probably sold 70% of the houses in the West Village over the years. And Gary was in talks with her about, about acquiring her, her company. And what we would do, what Douglas Solomon would do is, is um, acquire her company in her office there in the West Village. And then we would move uh, another big agent, Rafael De Niro, into that office. And I was beyond fortunate at this time because I, when I went to Gary and said, you know, I'm having a really tough time, he said, well, why don't you go over and, and manage this office that, that we're about to, to open? Uh, you know, it's, it, it's going to be Deborah Camaros and Rafael De Niro, two teams that are very well-oiled machines there's really not much for you to screw up. So why don't you go over and, and manage this office and, and that would supply you with a little bit of a, with, with a cushion. And so that, that was a lifeline for me and, and, and completely, completely changed also the, the, the trajectory of my career because it was then that I stopped selling real estate on a day-to-day basis and, and then moved into managing the office. And so I managed that office, which was a, um, Rafael De Niro and Deborah Camaros for a few years and and subsequently ended up the main Greenwich Village office, which was on 10th Street, was was too small for us. And so we started looking at acquiring a, um, a new office space over on Broadway. And so I uh, we merged the two offices later on, several years later, and I was managing both of those offices. And so the global financial crisis for me is what completely changed the trajectory of my career at at Douglas Elliman and 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 then onto it at Knight Frank. That's amazing, and it's it's so interesting that it had such a, a huge impact on the trajectory of your career. And for you, was it quite easy to adapt from going from the sales side to the operational side, or did you find that it it was strange, kind of going from being so interactive with clients to actually managing teams within within the firm? Well, I had I I I had I still had a very large set of clients, but my clients were completely different. My clients were the agents, and so you have to remember, at Doug at, in in the U.S., real estate agents are uh, independent contractors and um, and and therefore not employees. And so the mechanics and the, the the way that you sell real estate is completely different. So my clients became initially those two big teams. And and so I still was client facing, and I enjoyed that aspect of it. But it was still, it was it wasn't it wasn't you know somebody calling me and saying I need to sell my house on Twenty Third Street. It was, a, you know, one of the agents that had a problem that needed to be solved, or they needed money for an ad you know an ad campaign, or 
we need to find ways to streamline our expenses across these two offices. And so I liked having the ability to have, still have, you know, I still was client facing and still, you know, dealing with people, but it was, it was a different, the clients were, were, were different. They were just called agents. Yeah, no, I, I think I sometimes forget that it's, it's so different. I had um, Scott Durkin on the podcast at the beginning of this series, and he was telling me about how agents are independent over there. And so would you say that naturally, I suppose you're talking there about going from having one type of client to another, would you say that for you, one of the things that you really love about your career and your job and what you do is that that people focused element of it? Would you say that you need that human interaction and to be working with people and to have people not necessarily accountable to you but to rely on you in order to enjoy what you're doing yeah i would definitely say so i mean i am uh you know one of the facets of my job now that i really like is the fact that i do have a bit of an operational side to the role i have now so process improvement and you know kind of planning for you know what our our budgeting and and things like that but i'm also still dealing with 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 clients so i'm back dealing with a actual you know someone that needs to to purchase a property in 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 manhattan or in palm beach or wherever uh, or they have they they have a property in malibu that they need to sell and they would like to have a discussion with us about you know is douglas Elliman and knight frank the right company to list my property with so Right now, I, I I really like that my job has that I do have two hats, and I'm still I still have my finger on the operational side, but also I really like being back, um, you know, dealing with with clients on a day to day basis, you know, selling property ultimately. Mm. And a lot of people that have, have been on the podcast and have talked about things they've done earlier in their career, or maybe they started off in marketing, or maybe they started off in, in a completely different industry. They've all said that actually having that, being able to wear those two different hats and being able to feed different things into your property career actually helps. Would you say that, therefore, that you would recommend if somebody was looking to get into property to also explore other things and be prepared to take on different kinds of opportunities within the same or similar industries in order to improve their, their skills? set and be able to adapt to different things and make themselves a more unique agent or a unique person in that field. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think that somebody that, you know, if somebody's considering this, this line of work, you don't need to necessarily go to university to get a property degree. Yes, that's good if you can. But, you know, I think there are many, if you look around uh, the, the property industry, not only in the US, but in the, in the UK, you know, people come from a very wide variety of previous backgrounds, and it, it's not—it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's very much, I think, your your career will ultimately be better off and better informed if you if you come from another background, because there's so many different aspects of the property business and the real estate business that would benefit from having a, a, a variety of, of backgrounds. Mm. And as you touched on earlier on, you were saying that obviously the, the markets in the UK and the US are incredibly different and they work in completely different ways. To somebody who didn't have any idea of how the markets differed and as somebody who has worked in both markets, would you be able to explain to us the big differences and what you noticed that were the big kind of chasms between the two markets when you moved from the US to the UK? Definitely. I think the, you know, look, we're both, both countries, you know, the, the US system and the UK system, we're both selling houses, but we go about it entirely differently. So in the US, uh, as, as, as you mentioned, as Scott has mentioned, 
the agents in the US are 100% commission based, so they eat what they kill. In the UK and, and, and really in, in largely speaking for mainland Europe as well, the agents are, are salary based. And so, yeah, that, that definitely informs how the, the process the life cycle of the process in terms of how, you know, you keep and retain agents, but also your, the way that you are interacting with, with your, with your client base. Uh, you know, the one thing I would say, the one message I would have for someone who's thinking about the property business is if you're afraid of the word, no, you shouldn't be in this business. So many Agents and, and and I would say in the U.S. is American agents are are um, particularly bad in this regard is hiding behind text messages or hiding behind emails because they're afraid to pick up the phone to their client and 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 for fear that they might be told no. So what I would say is if if you're afraid of the word no and you don't like somebody saying no, it's not the job for you. Picking up the phone to your client and saying, "Listen, Jane, I see that you were recently in Paris. Do you have any property needs in Paris that we can help you with?" Or, "I noticed, Steve, that you are in LA quite a lot. Have you ever thought about buying a property there?" You know, many American agents, I would say, are afraid of picking up the phone and saying and asking a question like that, which is really too bad because you will always be surprised at the answer that you get. And um, and and that's been proven to me over time and time again, where you pick up the phone to somebody and and have a conversation with them, you'll get so much more than um, than hiding behind emails or hiding behind behind a text message. And so that's one thing, one difference that we have here in the UK and certainly at Night Frank is the the, the emphasis that's placed on actually picking up the phone. Uh, and, and speaking to your client because that unfortunately for I'm not saying it's across the board uh, all American agents are bad about picking up the phone not at all but I would say that the proportion of people that are afraid to pick up the phone and do hide behind text messages and do behind hide behind emails and 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 avoid client contact uh, probably higher in, in in the U.S. than they are here in the U.K. Mm, that's really interesting, actually, because I always think, and I don't know whether this is just me personally, but I always think of people in the US as a little bit more gregarious and probably more likely to pick up the phone and, and have conversations and stuff. Like that. so that's, that's really interesting. And so would you say that you've always been a fairly proactive person when it comes to this sort of thing? Or is that realizing that you do need to pick up the phone and have those conversations? Is that something you've learned more since moving to the UK? Well, it was it was a lesson that I learned when the global financial crisis hit because I was making no money and I had no money coming in and and so I had to become proactive and that was what really shook me was because when I first started out in the business it was much easier you know the 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 New York market was going absolute gangbusters and so when when the global financial crisis hit somebody flipped a switch and that was it party's over um you know it 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 wasn't it wasn't it wasn't easy at all and and so that was really what shook me and in, in saying you can't just sit back and wait for the phone to ring. You have to, you have to be active. You have to be proactive. Um, and then of course, moving over here five years ago, seeing how Knight Frank, my, you know, my other Knight Frank colleagues 
embrace the phone has certainly reinforced that for me. And how did you find the experience of, of moving from the US to the UK? What in particular inspired that decision? Had you been thinking about it for a while or did an opportunity come up? How did you go about doing it and how, how have you found being here now? Yeah, I, I get this question quite a bit, actually. Why on earth are you on the other side of the Atlantic right now? Well, um, I moved to London because my husband was accepted at UCL to work on a PhD. So that's what brought us over to the UK five years ago. And um, when I when I handed in my notice to Stephen Kotler, who was the COO at Douglas Elliman at the time, he said, well, where are you going to work? What are you going to do? Would you like to work for Knight Frank? And I said, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely would be interested in working for Knight Frank. He said, uh, you know, I can't make any promises, but you know, he would he would make a call and get back to me. The following day, I got a call from Stacy Watson, who said that it could be good timing because she was about to start looking for someone to work on the U.S. business. So I thank my lucky stars every day because the right job opened for me at the right time. And I am beyond fortunate that everything worked out the way that it did. That's amazing. And it's, I suppose it's luck, but it's also it's a testament to clearly how, how well you were doing at Douglas Element. They wanted you at Night Frank as well. And obviously now you've been here for five years and you said that you work both on the sales side and the operational side. Was was it always in the back of your mind to get back into the sales side of things? Were you always kind of harboring that ambition to to not only be doing the operational stuff, but also the sales stuff? And was it quite exciting for you then to be able to go back into that side too? Definitely, definitely. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm somebody that needs to be, I need to interact with people. I need, I need that client interaction. And so, so for me, this was, absolute godsend because it 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 meant that I could I could have both you know a hand in both in both pies and and that's that definitely has been for me one of the the best things about this this role is that I'm uh, that I am able to do both and have that client interaction again Mm, absolutely. And to touch back a little bit on something else that you did when you were you were in New York and I found particularly interesting on your on your LinkedIn profile when I was having a little stalk pre-interview was that you spent six and a half years as the chair of the Environment, Public Safety and Health Committee on the Manhattan Community Board, which to me sounds amazing and incredibly exciting as somebody who's a little bit obsessed with New York. But would you mind telling us what exactly a community board is and what this role was alongside what you were doing at Douglas Elliman? Yeah, well, uh, com- community boards are unique to New York. So here in London, we have 32 local councils that have elected councillors that make decisions on planning applications, new liquor licenses, uh, traffic changes, you name it. So the local councils here are making those decisions. In New York, there's only one city council for the entire city. So a city councillor from the Bronx, for example, probably won't know how a, a planning application would affect neighbors in a, a, a neighborhood in, in Staten Island, for example, because it's completely across town, or how a, a change in you know, the traffic rules on this particular street might Im- impact, I don't know, you know, school time. So w- in order for the, the city and the mayor to arrive at good decisions. They formed back in the 70s, I think it was back in the 60s or 70s, they formed 59 community boards. They divided up the entire city into community boards and Manhattan has 12 community boards. 
and they provide input on everything in order for the city council to approve um, a new liquor license, a zoning change, the city budget, and and service delivery around the city. So a, a pretty big role, but it's an advisory role, and the job is volunteer. You volunteer. I used to to joke and say you couldn't pay me to do this job because it was definitely a labor of love. I was appointed to my local community board by Manhattan Borough President Scott Stringer in 2006. And then six months later, I was asked to chair the Environment, Public Safety, and Public Health Committee. And kind of like when Gary asked me to manage the office, I suspect the board chair probably felt there wasn't much that I could screw up because there were some incredibly experienced people on that committee some some of the people had had been in that in the you know on that committee for you know 15 20 years in some cases so i was able to 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 learn as i went along and we had a a benefit because we were able to be proactive some committees are largely reactive so the owner of such and such house on West 11th Street wants to add a story on top of their house you know so planning changes that's reactive traffic changes, that's reactive in most cases. Um, our committee was had, had the benefit to, to be largely proactive. And one of the things I'm very proud of, for example, that we, that we did, uh, we led a campaign to crack down on the selling of fake purses on Canal Street. So just so everyone's aware, aware when, when someone buys a fake Chanel purse or a fake Prada purse or a fake Rolex, the majority of that money goes to support terrorism. The United Nations reported that counterfeiting, it, it still is one of the highest income sources for organized crime. So when we saw the, the, the amount of, 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 of counterfeit merchandise that was trading hands on Canal Street, we worked with the mayor's office, the fire department, the police department, and a few others to a few other city agencies to literally shut down Canal Street one day. And they seized more than $1 million in fake merchandise and closed down 32 shops as a result. So, yeah, we we were able to really think about how we could make our district better. And I thoroughly enjoyed those six and a half years that I was I was part of the community board. Mm, that's amazing. And I, I mean, I could just need to talk about that for ages because it's it's so interesting to hear people doing different things alongside their career. And, and as you said, you, you were immersing yourself in it. And I suppose it probably would have helped to some extent with your property career, understanding things that are going on in the community and understanding what's going on in, in particular areas. And so to somebody else, would you say that if they're trying, and I suppose you said you, you were fairly new to New York when you, you started doing it. And so would you say that I suppose this is a two-pronged question. Firstly, do you think that you're the sort of person that naturally wants to immerse yourself in things in order to learn and become embedded within communities and stuff? And also, second part of that question, would you recommend it to somebody else to say if you're looking to get yourself more involved in a city and find out things about it and and find ways of feeding into your career in a non-conventional way, would you recommend somebody else doing something similar? Absolutely. And I think everybody needs to pursue their passions, no matter no matter what they are. And for me, you know, I had a passion for actually trying to make in, in a small, very, very small way, but trying to make New York City better. It's a city that I love. And, you know, that's ultimately what led me to 
to apply to join the community board because I, 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 I wanted to play a small part in trying to make the, the city a better place and my community a better place. And, and I think that uh, we need people in the property business that are, that are, that, that do have interests outside of, of selling apartment one B, you know, I think it's so important that ultimately people pursue their, their passions outside of, outside of, of selling, selling property because you know we we can we can all affect change and and it's just a matter of of actually putting your mind to it and and that's I couldn't I couldn't recommend it more. Mm, definitely that's that's so inspiring and and I think I completely agree it's the more multifaceted you can make yourself as a person the more you have to give not just to kind of clients but also to colleagues and and people like that. And to move things on to talking about property a little bit more because obviously this podcast people want to hear about houses and want to hear about amazing properties because we do sell some of the most incredible ones in the world. Is there a particular property story for you that sticks out in your mind or in a client experienced or anything like that that you would like to tell us a little bit more about? You know, the great thing about this business is you never know from one day to the next who you're going to be interacting with. It, it, real estate, it's its something we all have in common. We all need a roof over our heads, no matter whether you're famous or you're not, or you have 10 pounds in your bank account, or you have 100 million pounds. We all need a place to call home. When I first started out, Obviously, I needed to learn the business. So a friend of mine who's very connected, he, he brought me along for the first few months to all of his viewings. And one of the first clients I dealt with was a very well-known film director. And we were showing him the townhouse that was owned by an actor he had worked with on an earlier film. And it was just one of those pinch yourself moments and and showed me that, you know, in this business, you never know who you could be speaking to next. Yeah, definitely. That's amazing. If you can wake up one day and have a call like that, that's pretty exciting. And I think most people would love to have something like that. Um, and when it comes to to your home, what factors were you considering when you were looking for your home in both New York and London? And did you find that your what you were looking for in both cities differed or were you always sort of looking for the same sorts of things? So in New York, it's very difficult to have outdoor space. So my husband and I, we've been together now for 13 years. He has a background in horticulture. So what was I looking for in my current home? It was outdoor space because we'd been together at that point for, what, 12, 11 11 years. And we had never had any private outdoor space, a garden, a proper garden. I mean, we had a balcony, but you can't, I mean, what are you going to have a window box on the balcony? That's not very interesting. We wanted a, you know, a garden. Uh, and so for, for, for us in this, in, in our current, um, in our current property, it was that we really, you know, we, we are going to find outdoor space and it's quite difficult to get outdoor space. We certainly couldn't have afforded it in New York. Uh, even now, I mean, getting giving getting um, a garden space in in Manhattan is very difficult to find, and so, you know, London is much more spread out, and therefore, it's not as as difficult to find outdoor space. So when we first moved here, we lived three years um, in an apartment building, and it was a it was a great apartment building, and really liked the part of town that we were in, but we just had a little dinky balcony, and it was also it didn't get any shade um, it didn't get any sun at all it was full shade all the time and so we said right that's it we're not renewing our lease and we want 
um, we want a, a house with with a with a garden, and so that was main priority number one was was having outdoor space that we could actually plant, and and it's just been so, you know, for me, my home is so important because my life is so chaotic, and we all work very long hours, and for me, it's so important to have a, a home that's a that's cozy, that is a comfortable space to be in, that you look forward to being in, and 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 it's just been such a treat. And obviously, there you were saying that that when you moved to London, it was all about about having that outside space and and things like that. Have you found that with lockdown and stuff, you've you've really benefited from that, and that it's actually been incredibly important for you to have that extra outside space? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, for for, for us to be able to, you know actually have some some green space just out our back door has been has been an absolute lifeline uh, especially during lockdown because we were spending so much time at home so you know in the summer you know in the spring and summer we had incredible weather here in london as you'll as you'll remember and it was just so nice to be able to spend lunch actually weeding (laughs) i know that sounds crazy but we had a fair bit of bindweed and i had um had it out for the bindweed and it's just it was therapeutic just to spend lunch just kind of weeding i know that sounds so dull but it it was very for for me it was very therapeutic no definitely i think and it's all about finding especially at the moment it's all about finding those cathartic outlets and and working out what's actually going to be good for your for your mental health as well as as your as your physical health and and making sure that especially at the moment we're not working 24 7 because especially with property as well and having clients it must be quite hard to switch off sometimes yeah definitely and and it's not uncommon to be on the phone at 10 p.m at night so um it, it is important to to find moments to to, to actually switch off uh and uh, i mean for me it's 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 essential because otherwise you know you can i just i worry about everything and so um if if i if i don't have that sort of break in my day where I just disconnect it, it kind of you know the day can kind of spiral out of control mm, absolutely and I think it's really important to recognize that sort of stuff as well and that realize that you do need that as cliche as it sounds that that work-life balance to ensure that things that things don't get too much So we begin to wrap up every podcast with a quick fire round. And the first question of which is city or country? Oh, both. Yes. <laughs> for me, uh, my, my, I, I, I couldn't pick one for me. I need both. I absolutely have to have both. Classic or contemporary? Contemporary. Penthouse or townhouse? Penthouse. Call or email? Call every time. Office or working from home? Office. Instagram or LinkedIn? Instagram. Walk or run? Slow and steady wins the race. (laughs) (laughs) Slightly topical one here. Thanksgiving or Christmas? Oh, um, Thanksgiving or Christmas. I guess Christmas because that's when I actually get to see my family. Oh, amazing. And the final one is London or New York? Uh, London. I'm, I'm in love with London right now. Oh, great to hear. And the final question that we ask everybody is, what does being a partner in property mean to you? It means cooperation. Uh, you know, whether that cooperation is between myself and a coworker or that cooperation is between myself and a client, you know, ultimately, 
for me, it's all about working together to achieve a common goal. And that's what I really like about being a partner in property. Brilliant. Jason, thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of At Home With. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you shared this episode on social media, and please check out the show notes for more information.